All of you should have a little color outline there, Christmas colory outline. We're going to take a break from our exposition of Zechariah and uh, do something a little more Christmassy, not through the book of the Bible, the traditional exposition, but we will use the Bible. And I don't have PowerPoint tonight, which really makes it difficult for me to preach because I'm so used to PowerPoint. But anyway, you see where we're going with this. Back in 567 A.D., the Council of Tours declared there would be 12 days between December 25th and January 6th, which they celebrated on January 6th, the baptism of Jesus and the appearance of the wise men. And so that became the 12 days between Christmas in which they established certain festivals. And uh, it wasn't until 1780s that uh, this was uh, somebody wrote in a children's book a poem which later in the late 1900s was put to music and it became known as the 12 days of Christmas. So you can Wikipedia and Google all the details of that process. But it rings in our head the 12 days of Christmas. So several years ago, there may be a couple of you have heard this before and you've probably forgotten, that's okay. But I was thinking, the 12 days of Christmas. There's got to be a sermon there, right? You, you get a sermon title, then you find a text. No, don't do that. Bad hermeneutics and uh, bad homiletics. But in uh, some of my studies about Christmas, it uh, came to me that the devil was busy all throughout the Old Testament, right? His mission was to stop Christmas. That's been, that's, that was his mission. Keep the Messiah from coming. So I, there are more events of the, than this, but these are 12 biggies, 12 big events where the devil tried to stop Christmas. So you have it in front of you, all the different texts and my cutesy little uh, titles for each of these. But they are magnificent reminders of God and his divine decrees, how he has ordained the events, especially all events, particularly that of the birth of our Savior. The biblical record contains God's promise of the coming Messiah. Even in Zechariah, we've been studying that promise, right? Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming. And the Bible also details and records countless attacks by Satan in order to frustrate the plan of God. The serpent's endeavors were numerous, from his wicked temptation in the garden to his evil influence over Herod in an attempt to kill the Messiah. The devil's devious actions have never ceased. If he could destroy Israel or just cut off the messianic line, the devil would be the victor. He would rule over God and his heavenly host by stopping his plan. 
However, that is and was and will be impossible. The outcome of every devilish battle is the same. God wins. The outcome is Jesus came. Christ is risen. Christ is coming again. If God be God and he is, what other outcome is possible? He even uses the schemes of the evil one to accomplish his plan. No devil's day could ever stop Christmas. Every day has been a day when the forces of evil have tried to prevent the Lord from carrying out his preordained plan, specifically salvation through the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. There are several episodes that can be called out for special attention, but I've called these 12 out because they are pretty shocking events. They're of a shocking nature. They're particular days in which there was a pinnacle in the plan to bring about the birth of our Savior. These days were God's victorious days, battles, days, and times which seemed like the end of Israel and the line of the Messiah might be cut off. But that would not be the case, of course. So let's call these the 12 days that could not stop Christmas. No matter the satanic scheme or the devilish deception, the evil influence or the atrocious attack, God turned these 12 days into the working out of his proposed decrees made before the foundation of the world. Take, for example, the fall. No surprise to God. He's not the author of evil nor a tempter. Of course, the text, the Bible says that, James 1.13. He never delights in wickedness, Psalm 5, 4. But in his great wisdom, he did, in fact, ordain that sin would come into the world. And I think his purpose is to demonstrate who he is. Without the fall, we would not know his attributes, such as holiness, love, mercy, justice. So not even the fall could stop Christmas. It was all planned. The voluntary choice of angels. Think about that. One of them, known as the devil, to rule or, or to, to uh, sin and rebel against the Most High God was only the beginning of, re of revolt and sinfulness in the world. The serpent's mission was, to, uh, was accomplished when he got, so he thought, when he got Adam and Eve to disobey their creator. But without this dreadful and deadly, there, I mean, with this fall, were dreadful and deadly consequences, but they would bring about the wonderful display of the character of God and his mercy and love, patience and holiness and salvation. Not even the results of the fall could stop Christmas. In the very passage that quotes the curse upon the serpent, Genesis 3, the Lord gives the first of many promises which declared that through the seed of the woman, the Messiah would come and triumph over Satan, triumph over sin and death. Three battles take place 
in Genesis 3.15. You're familiar with that. The first gospel. The first is the battle between the serpent and Eve in the form of temptation. The serpent has temporary victory. Second, the battle between the serpent's offspring and Eve's descendants is foretold. The Bible describes this continuous struggle as the war between the children of God and the children of the devil. It's ongoing. It's a continual battle. And then we see the final battle between the serpent and the Messiah, which ends with the Messiah, he in the text, crushing a fatal head wound to the devil in Genesis 3.15. The devil only bruises the Messiah on the cross. But the resurrected living Christ Jesus has cursed the head of the serpent, conquering sin and death. Satan ultimately loses and is cast into the lake of fire to endure his well-deserved and eternal punishment. Satan will be stopped, but not Christmas. That's the point. Genesis chapter 4, we encounter right after this immediately the narrative of the first murder. Satan, along with man's inherent sin nature, continue the attack on the promised seed. The story of Cain's jealousy leads to the murder of Abel, which is the first of our 12 days that could not stop. Christmas. You can see it in Genesis 4. The day of a hideous murder couldn't stop Christmas. The birth of Cain and Abel marks the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise that Adam and Eve would produce children, seed, from whom the Messiah would event, event, uh, inevitably would come. Eve acknowledged that with the help of the Lord, she became the mother of Cain and then she bore Abel. Moses, the writer of Genesis, jumps right in from the birth of these first brothers to the story of Cain's unacceptable sacrifice. God accepted Abel's obedience for offering a sacrifice in the prescribed way. And then as the famous narrative goes, Cain, instead of repenting, slew his brother. The firstborn son, Cain, was made a fugitive and a vagabond, a wanderer, thus surrendering his right to carry on the promise of Genesis 3.15. Oh, no! Will Christmas be stopped? Of course not. God does not withdraw his promise. Even in the wake of Cain and his devilish sin and murder, and he will work it all out. The faithfulness, the mercy, the patience of God are so clearly seen that we read that God gave Eve another son named Seth. And she said, God has appointed me another seed, another offspring in the place of Abel. So the story concludes as it had commenced with a focus on the seed of the woman, the birth of a son, and attention given to the promised seed. From Adam to Seth, the promise continues. The Messiah would come, and not even, a, not even a hideous murder could stop Christmas. Second, the day of horrendous judgment. Genesis 6. 
It's the account uh, that continues in chapter 5 with the genealogy of Adam to Noah. And in the days of Seth, Adam's third son, men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. That's a good thing. But within the next 10 generations, God saw that the wickedness of man on earth was only evil continually. Think about that. In the days of Seth, men called upon the Lord. Ten generations later, later, the world deserves the flood. How fast things change. Satan and his demons, giants, and the rest of the human race were hell-bent on evil. One can only imagine a world left unchecked and unjudged, how bad it could get. The book of Revelation gives us a clue, right? <laughs> it's going to get bad. The promise of the messianic line would have been so corrupted, if not wiped out completely. Still, the righteous justice of God demanded punishment, but he wouldn't wipe man off the earth, forfeiting the promise and the seed of the Messiah. The atrocious acts of mankind certainly drew God's judgment. It came in the form of a global flood, particularly known as Noah's popularly known as Noah's Flood. But in God's punishing intervention, Noah, by faith, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of destruction, God's faithfulness and long, long, long suffering preserved the seed of the woman through the ark. God kept his promise of redemption through Adam, Seth, and then Noah's son, Shem. Next in the Messianic line, Shem's descendants are listed all the way to Abraham, who apart from King David was the most notable in the line of Jesus. Even God's day of horrendous judgment could not stop Christmas. Then think about hopeless Sarah, Genesis 16 through 18. And then in chapter 21, Another day that could not stop Christmas. It's worth noting that from the time of Seth to Abraham, the world had again defected from the Lord. You have the Tower of Babel. God's good. People repent, and it's not too long before it's all bad again. The story of individuals, nations, and the world. God called Abraham from Ur and promised that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. God ratified that promise in the form of a covenant. Ten years in Canaan and no offspring. Sarah took matters into her own hand, giving her maidservant to Abraham. You familiar with these stories? Like Eve, she tried to formulate a plan for blessing that only God could accomplish. Our patient Lord again visits Abraham to reaffirm his covenant, to bless the world through his seed. On that very solemn day, thinking that God could not use a very old couple Abraham fell on his face and did what? Laughed. I'm too old. Then three men, the Lord and two angels, appeared to Abraham. As Sarah secretly listened through the tent door, one of the men, the Lord, repeated the promise. Thinking she was too old, she laughed within herself. The Lord knew that Sarah laughed, yet he still kept his promise. 
the same year, Abraham being 100 years old, and years after the promise was first given, the Lord visited Sarah, and she gave birth to Isaac, heir of the promised seed. Human effort, laughter, and doubt could not stop Christmas. The next event is in Exodus 14, the days of horrific Pharaoh. The Messianic promise continues on in Abel and Seth and Shem and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his dozen sons. Joseph is sold into Egypt. He's sold to the Ishmaelites. He ends up in Egypt. And that's just the beginning of a long story of captivity of the Israelites. Maybe the promise is over. There'll be no Christmas if the Jews are in Egypt forever. But, amazingly, God tells Abraham that his descendants would be strangers in a land that's not theirs for 400 years. After slavery and under many pharaohs, it was time for their release. The Lord raised up Moses to deliver them. The miracle of Aaron's staff turning a serpent, turning into a serpent, was imitating the Egyptian wise men who through demonic power had turned their staves into serpents, but Moses ate theirs up. This didn't phase Pharaoh. He hardened his heart, and God hardened it all the more. As the unrelenting plagues grew in degree, he would still not let people, God's people go. Not even the death of the firstborn soften Pharaoh's heart. The blood of the innocent lamb on the doorpost saved the firstborn in Israel and gave opportunity for the Jews to flee. In a horrific pursuit, the armies of Egypt followed them into the Red Sea where the Egyptians were swallowed up. Passover is the reminder of this great display of God's redeeming power and his covenant-keeping promises. The promise line continued through the tribe of Judah, having been delivered from Egypt. During the wilderness, God keeps the people. During the conquest of Israel, of Canaan, and through David, he keeps the tribe. He keeps the line. He keeps Christmas. All the devil's attempts through Pharaoh to destroy the promise of salvation through Abraham and the nation could not stop Christmas. Next, think of the days of hidden Joash. Some of these stories you may be familiar with, some might be new. But in 2 Kings 11 and 2 Chronicles 22, we read of this story. The line of the promised seed had continued through Abraham, David, Solomon, and the kings in Jerusalem. But in the north, in Samaria, Ahab and Jezebel had taken wickedness to new heights. In Judah, things weren't any better. Attempting to secure the throne, Jehoram had his brothers killed. A lesson no doubt learned from his father-in-law, Ahab. His youngest son, Ahaziah, then ruled and was coached by his wicked mother, Athaliah. Have you ever heard those names before? 
They're not too famous, and they shouldn't be. But Athaliah, in an effort to rid Israel of Baal worship, Jehu had 42 of Ahaziah's brothers executed. He think our politics are bad. This was a devastating blow to the royal line of David. When Ahaziah died, his evil mother seized the throne in Jerusalem. With all of her sons now dead, now dead, what is the only obstacle? Her grandsons. She killed her grandsons, except for one. The only obstacle was her grandsons, and so evil was she that she set out to kill them. If she had succeeded, the devil would have put an end to the promised seed of the Messiah. But this line of the Messiah would not be extinguished because Jehosheba steps in. As wicked Athaliah was busy rounding up her grandsons for slaughter, Jehosheba grabbed up the last infant heir and hid him in the sleeping quarters of the priest for six years. When Joash was seven years old, the high priest stood him by the pillars of the temple and pronounced him king. Queen Athaliah heard the celebration, came to see what was happening, and she was apprehended, and Joash put her to death. Think about that. The line of the Messiah got down to one infant who was hidden by the priest near the temple. Not even this evil act of a grandmother could stop Christmas. Joash was saved and the plans of the quick, wicked king were put to an end. The next day is the day of helpless Hezekiah. If you're following this, it's almost an Old Testament survey of wickedness, but God's merciful intervention. The Jews had sinned. We've been reading about that in Zechariah. They didn't learn from the ten tribes in the north. And from the days of Joshua's conquest to King David and after him, they just never could be faithful. Their leaders were corrupt. As far back as Moses, God warned that if his people failed to obey the covenant, they themselves would be conquered and deported. In the days of Hezekiah, the northern tribes had already been captured by the Assyrians. The same army now is surrounding Jerusalem, helpless and unaware of his impending doom. Hezekiah paid tribute to Sennacherib, giving him all of the temple treasures. The king of Israel gives the enemy the goods from the temple. He even stripped the gold off of the temple doors and gave it to the Assyrian king. That was not enough. The Assyrians wanted everything in Jerusalem. They sent a delegation to the king saying, What confidence do you have? Whom do you rely upon? 2 Kings 18. They mocked the king for trusting in Egypt and in the Lord. 
The people near the wall heard the threats, and Hezekiah became a nervous king. He'd been watching CNN a little too much. And the people were nervous, which made him nervous. With all the surrounding armies, he ran into the temple. He tore his clothes, and he called for Isaiah, saying, This day is a day of distress. It's a day of rebuke and rejection, for children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. The king is saying, we're a little nation, and we're like, we can't get there. Through Isaiah, God said, I will defend the city for my own name's sake. That same night, the surrounding army slept, and the angel of the Lord went through the camp of the Assyrians and killed 185,000 of them. Israel was safe. World powers, helpless kings cannot stop Christmas. Think about that. Not even the kings in Israel and Judah trusted the Lord. Think about 2 Chronicles 36, Jeremiah 22, the day of hostage Jeconiah. The Lord exhibited his patience and mercy in sparing Hezekiah. He defeated the Assyrian army that was surrounding Jerusalem. Judah had witnessed the fall of Samaria, her brothers in the north. Yet Jerusalem and Judah, which had the royal families and those in the line of David and the promise and the covenants, did not listen. They didn't take notice of what even Isaiah told them would happen. They did not repent. They did not obey the Lord. So their captivity was inevitable. Idolatry and wickedness has reached its full measure, not just in the north, but in the south, Judah, and in Jerusalem. Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, or he's also known as Jeconiah, Judah's 18-year-old king, ruled for just three months. Think about it. These are people in the line of the Messiah. Enough time to display evil like his father did. Even though he had sons, the curse meant that... And, and so great was his iniquity that God cursed him. And he said, you will be childless. Well, he already had sons. The curse meant that they would not reign on his father's throne. Think about that. The king in Jerusalem is so wicked. God says, you're cursed. None of your sons are going to rule on the throne. And God raises up the Babylonians as his disciplinary instrument. The Lord brought Nebuchadnezzar into the city in 597 B.C., robbed the temple, burned the city. Jeconiah was hauled into captivity into Babylon where he remained for 37 years. None of his sons ever reigned on the throne in Jerusalem. Oh! <gasps> That's the end of the Messianic line, isn't it? No. When we come to Matthew and Luke and read the genealogies, Matthew's genealogy, the royal line of Jesus goes through Joseph and includes Jeconiah. So Jesus bypassed the curse because he was not of the bloodline of Jeconiah, but a physical descendant of Mary. Think about that. How intricate. You can't make it up. The bloodline, the 
bloodline was cursed, the royal line was not, and through Mary, Jesus has the right to the throne. The holiness of God demanded that his people go into exile, but it would not stop Christmas from happening. The royal and the physical line continued, and Jesus sits on the throne in the line of Mary, bypassing the curse, and Christmas was not stopped. Think about the day of hostile Haman in the book of Esther. Babylonians were now dominating the world, and they were followed by the Persians. Some Jews had returned to Jerusalem. Others were still living in Persia. Even in a foreign land, God continued his preservation of the people and the Messiah and his line. The family feud began 1,000 years earlier when God told King Saul to kill all the Amalekites. One of their ancestors was Haman. Think about that. A thousand years later, later, an Amalekite, Haman, comes to the forefront of this story. He's now a chief prince in Persia. Satan desires to use him to extinguish the chosen people, thereby endangering the messianic line. Taken into captivity along with Jeconiah was Kish, the great-grandfather of Mordecai. Mordecai adopted beautiful Esther and raised her. In God's providence, Esther found favor in the eyes of King Ahasuerus. She becomes queen, and the plot thickens as Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman. So Haman builds the gallows to hang him on. And he tricked the king into signing a decree to have the Jews destroyed. The king discovered that earlier Mordecai uncovered a plan to have him killed. Do you see that? Haman tricks the king, but Mordecai tells the king about Haman's tricks. And to honor Haman, Mordecai was honored at a royal banquet of his own. And the plan was uncovered, made public, and Haman was hung on the gallows he built for Mordecai as he tried to destroy the Jewish people. Nothing could have stopped Christmas. None of these international events, personal events, none of these satanic probings could keep Christmas from coming. Haman was discovered and hanged on his own gallows. Satan's plan to use evil, hostile Haman could not stop Christmas. The ninth day, the day of heroic, a heroic hammer. A heroic hammer. This is found in Daniel 11, but it's also found in not a biblical book, but in the books of 1 and 2 Maccabees. There is a family called the Maccabees. Their leader, Judas, he was called the hammer. And God used him because the Babylonians couldn't stop Christmas. The Persians couldn't stop Christmas. The devil then tried to use the Greeks to stop Christmas. At the death of Alexander the Great, the kingdom was divided. 
Two of the generals battled one another for 250 years. The king of Assyria, the king of Egypt from the Greek empire would battle each other with Israel in the middle. There were marriages and treaties, but Israel was always caught in the middle between Egypt and Syria. And it, it would look like Israel would be devastated. Time and time again, those armies went up and down the land, taking out their revenge on the Jewish people. As their armies marched through the land, the loser would take out the frustration on the Jews. On one of these attacks, Antiochus went through Israel. He took out his rage. He killed 80,000 Jewish men. Do you know that happened between the Testaments? It wasn't a silent time. It was silent from God. But a lot was going on. The devil was trying to extinguish Israel even between the Testaments. Antiochus was in firm control of Israel. He was bothered by the Jews who were trying to outbid each other for the priesthood. Think about this. Jews in Jerusalem are bidding, sending bribes to the king of Assyria on who could be the priest in Jerusalem. That doesn't make sense, does it? That's how bad things had gotten. We'll pay our enemies Maybe he'll let me be priest. No, I'll pay him more. So it's just a horrible time. Fed up with all of this nonsense going on in Israel, Antiochus attacks Jerusalem. You know the story. Antiochus Epiphanes goes into the temple, puts up a statue of Zeus, stops the sacrifices, and attempts to Hellenize them, which means to make Greek, forcing the Greek culture upon the Jewish people. Man, where is the Davidic line? Once again, the nation seemed to be on the verge of annihilation. But Daniel had prophesied in chapter 11, the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Guess what? The Maccabees knew the book of Daniel. They saw what was going on and they took action. They defeated Antiochus, sent him back to Assyria, cleansed the temple. And what holiday commemorates that? Do you know? Hanukkah. I mean, Hanukkah is a time... When the Jews were about this far from extinction, their own temple had a statue of Zeus inside of it. And God raised up the Maccabees, defeated them, sent them home. And since the time of Solomon, that was probably the greatest the empire was since the time of Solomon. It wasn't godly, but the Israel was intact and Christmas could not be stopped. How about the days of heinous Herod? He's well known around this time of year. Of all the monstrous villains in the Bible, Herod may be the worst. Remember going to Israel, you guys, just recently, right? Everywhere you look in Israel, you see the architecture, the engineering, and the building of Herod. He left his mark on the land for us to see even today. And he was wicked. He was horrible. 
the conflict between Jacob and Esau continued in Herod. Did you know Herod was an Idumean from Edom? Hear that? Edom, Idumean. So the conflict between Jacob and Esau comes all the way to the time of Christ. The descendants of Esau, Herod, upon finding out that the wise men from the east came to find Christ, Herod was insane. <laughs> he wanted to stop this. He's troubled. And when Herod is troubled, everyone is troubled. Lying about his intent to worship Jesus. Um, he found out through the priest that he was to be born in Bethlehem. And that it was two years earlier. The promised one of Genesis 3.15 had come. But hell was the busiest it had ever been. All attempts to eliminate the nation and the messianic line that we've referred to earlier have failed. The devil was working overtime in the heart of Herod to kill the Savior. Heaven intervened through an angel of the Lord and warned Joseph to take the child and his mother to flee to Egypt. Herod knew he had been tricked when the wise men failed to return and inform him where Jesus was. So Herod showed himself to be the heinous ruler that all knew him to be. With wrath, he ordered all the male children under two years old to be killed, fulfilling Jeremiah's prophecy that weeping and great mourning would be in Israel. But Jesus and his appointed ministry of salvation and reconciliation was not hindered. The promised Messiah was safe in Egypt and then taken to Nazareth. Even heinous Herod could not stop Christmas. You know, I, tell, I try to tell my boys, they're tired of me hearing it. You can't make this up. These intertwining stories from Genesis to the Gospels are not some act of a computer or men who cut and pasted things together. No one could devise such an intricate, beautiful story as we have witnessed this evening. The devil and his plans failed time and time again. God wins. Attacks upon the nation, attacks upon individual kings, all failed. Even the wicked grandmother killing all but one of her grandchildren failed to stop the Messiah from coming. And he did. None of these hellish acts could stop Christmas. You know what? It'll even continue in the future. You ever wondered why there was a Holocaust? Think about what we read tonight. Why is there a hatred of Israel? Israel was... The devil set out to destroy Israel to keep the Messiah coming the first time. 
What do you think he's trying to do now? Destroy Israel to keep Messiah from ruling on his throne. If Israel's gone, God's promises would fail. So, let me fast forward to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. Turn in your Bibles there. All the past attempts to keep Jesus from coming failed. As the stories we looked at tonight.